this morning we are continuing our Advent series entitled Home for Christmas. We started it last week by saying this. At Christmas, we learn just how great God's love is for us. And this is how great God's love is for us, that he would choose to make a home here with us who are so hard to love. Uh, That's really the big idea behind Christmas. We learn that God's love is so great that he's willing to come here and wrap himself in flesh and blood and live with us and for us and die for us. He's willing to make a home, a, a literal home here with us who would not understand him, who would totally mistreat him, absolutely reject him, and ultimately murder him. He made a home with us who are hard to love. Another way of talking about that is the way theologians describe it, which is as the incarnation. That rather than simply appear in his creation, God took on flesh and became a member of his own creation. He wrapped himself in flesh and, blown, fresh and, flesh and bone and became one of us. And what I want us to wrestle with throughout Advent is what the implications are of the incarnation for our own relationships. I mean, if you're here as a follower of Jesus, you are the recipient of this love of God. He has made himself home here with you so that he can love and forgive you who is so hard to love. And as that nestles further into our hearts and into our minds, we are called to wrestle with how that could change us, in particular how it could change our living with other people around us. And so last week, we kicked things off by talking about how the incarnation could change how we live with our relatives, members of our family who might be hard to love. Next week, we're going to talk about how this could change how we interact with our enemies, and everybody's got an enemy or two, people who've hurt us or who have wronged us, who we have perhaps good reason not to like, and who it's hard to love, and how God's love for us could change our love for them. But today, I want to talk about how God's love for us, his willingness to take on flesh and make a home and be powerfully present with us, can shape our love of those who are in need around us, the needy in our lives. Now, when I bring up this topic, when I talk about showing love for the needy at the holidays in particular, my guess is that a couple things instantly come to mind for you. Perhaps the first thing that comes to mind for you are those red kettles outside of every store and the ringing of the bell. Salvation Army. Every year they collect millions for people in need. Or maybe what comes to mind for you is Toys for Tots, that awesome organization run by the U.S. Marines, and they've collected Uh, According to my uh, internet search, over half a billion toys since their their beginning. But my encouragement for you is, when I talk about loving the needy at the holidays, is not to talk about a particular program, but my encouragement for you is to talk about particular people. Is to think not about programs that we see at the holidays, but, but to bring to mind particular people in your life. People in your family, people in your circle of friends, people that you see every day when you drop off the kids at school or that you, you work with, who meet this particular definition. They are lacking something essential, something that you probably have, something essential to a joyful and peaceful existence. Who around you is lacking or in short supply of something that you would consider as essential to a joyful, peaceful existence? It may be that they lack some financial resources and the ability to provide a good Christmas for their kids, or that they lack uh, a certain level of well-being and health because they have some some chronic illnesses and some high medical deductibles. Uh, It could be that they they lack some opportunity because of some institutional obstacles in their way. It could be that they lack safety and they're very vulnerable. What are some of the things that you enjoy that lead to your peaceful 
and joyful existence? And who around you is lacking or in short supply of those things? Think of their names. Picture their face. Who is it? And now with with their image in your mind, consider this. I would say to you that it is hypocritical for the people of Jesus to claim that their holiday is centered around the person and work of Jesus if in our celebration of the holiday we ignore that face. We ignore the need attached to that name. I mean, after all, the, the whole story of Christmas is about God noticing our need and joining with us in our need to meet our greatest need. How then can we say that Jesus is the center of our season, the reason for our celebration, if we overlook the need of other people that we notice? That seems hypocritical, darn darn near impossible. It'd be like celebrating Texas Independence Day, March 2nd, by the way, minus brisket and bluebell. Or by walking around asking people like, so what was the Alamo anyway? Don't do that. You can't say you're celebrating Texas Independence Day without bluebell in one hand, brisket in another hand, and the Alamo in your heart. It's not possible, right? The same is true for followers of Jesus. Christmas is all about God noticing our need and joining us in our needs, so then we, if, if Jesus is at the center of our celebration, we have to respond to the needs that we notice. The things go hand in hand. And just to remind you of this and prove this to you, let, let's spend some time together this morning just, just thinking more deeply about the arrival of Jesus and the state in which he arrived. Jesus was born lacking social status. He, he was born as a member of uh, an oppressed and overlooked class of people. Jesus was born as a, a brown-skinned Jewish baby in a part of the world where the Jews were a minority class being oppressed by the lighter-skinned Romans who were not nearly as religious as the Jews and saw their religiosity as a reason to oppress them and be threatened by them. Jesus was not born as a Roman. He was born as a brown-skinned baby Jewish boy. He was born lacking social status. He was also born lacking, you could say, dignity. He was born... um, Some would argue in shame and in poverty. He he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of an unwed mother who had to hide her pregnancy out of shame until the baby was born. And he was ultimately birthed in the back alley of Bethlehem. He he was also born in weakness. I mean, he was born. He he was entering the world as a child, as a totally helpless being. I mean, it's it's impossible for us to wrap our minds around, but it's, it's worth the effort to at least try to wrap our minds around the fact that the maker of the moon had to cry for his food. That the one who spoke all things into being had to be taught how to talk. He was born in total weakness, in absolute need. He was born minus social status. He was born minus cultural dignity. He was born totally dependent, but there's more. Even the announcement of his birth paints the picture of just how totally and completely God wrapped himself in need and want as he entered our world. I mean, in this day and age, when babies are born, their announcement looks something like this. It's cute and lovely. 
You pay a hundred bucks on tinyprints.com and you get some birth announcement printed up and you send it to all the important people in your little world, right? And you announce the birth of your latest tax deduction. <laughs> but let's reflect on the announcement of Jesus' birth. Yes, angels were involved, which is to be expected when God is being born. But think again about the setting and the people who received this announcement. We just heard it read, but it's worth going over again. In Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 8, Luke tells us this. There were shepherds out in the field. That's a key point. Keeping watch over their flock by night. So this is third shift shepherds, okay? And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you, third shift shepherds, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, third shift shepherds, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the long-awaited Mashiach, Messiah, King, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a king on a throne surrounded by royalty. No. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It is hard to overstate how ludicrous of a picture is being painted here by Luke, especially to a first century hearer. I mean, historians tell us that, that in the first century, particularly in first century Palestine, a shepherd was at the bottom of the social order. Certainly it makes sense for angels to announce the birth of God, but you'd think they would announce it to someone of, of prominence, of importance, but no, the angels announce it to the shepherds. Uh, one historian that I read earlier this week said that shepherds were considered to be two things. They were considered to be untrustworthy and dirty in every sense of the word. If you met a shepherd, you couldn't take their word and you needed to tell them to take a shower. That's who Jesus' birth is announced to. I tried to find some close cultural equivalent, and apologies in advance to anyone I might offend with this, but, but I'm searching for some close cultural equivalent in this day. Um, when I was growing up in the middle of Michigan, there was this, this ritual at the end of the school year. School would let out, and the carnival would come to town. School would let out in the middle of Michigan, and the carnival would set up town, and so you'd run out of school on the last day, and my mom would pay for the bracelet so we could ride the tilt-a-whirl all day long and come home sick. But without fail, before we went to the carnival, she'd give us money for the bracelet to ride the rides all day, but then she would pull us aside and she would say, now, be careful of the carnival workers. We don't know these people. They're not from around here. We can't take them at their word. Some of them need to take a shower. Just be careful. Without fail, she would say that. That, to me, is the closest cultural equivalent, maybe, of what a shepherd was. And those are the ones to whom Jesus' birth is announced. Those are the ones, not only is it announced to them, they are entrusted, the first ones entrusted to take that message to the rest of the world. Notice the angel says that, that the baby is born for the world, but it's been given first to you, the people in the lowest level of the social order. This is meant to paint a deep and meaningful picture for you and for me about just who God is and how much he loves us. He comes to wrap himself not only in flesh and blood, but in every conceivable way, he wraps himself from the cradle he's born in to the social class he enters, to the color of his skin, the oppression of his people, and even the announcement of his birth, he wraps himself in total need and weakness. You can't escape this. 
Why? I mean, he, he didn't have to do this. Why does he enter our world wrapped in utter need? I think it's important for us to highlight a couple of reasons. And I'll use words that, that Jesus would use. I think Jesus entered into this world in this particular weak and needy state for three reasons. He came to lift up the needy, to exalt them, to humble the proud, and to bless us all. That's what his birth in total weakness and in deep need means for us. But by being born into not just flesh and bone, but total and absolute need and poverty, Jesus is lifting up all of the weakness and need in our world. And by that, I mean this. No longer can you ever say with legitimacy that you are too good to love and serve and to see yourself as one of the needy people around you. Because God himself wrapped himself in need and in poverty and so God has made a statement to the world that he is not too good for the neediest and lowliest and weakest in this world. So you can no longer, in any capacity, in any way, claim that you are too busy for, too important for, too good for the weak and needy of this world. If it was not beneath God to live amongst them, then it certainly can never be beneath you to help and love and serve them. Not only that, but he exalts the needy, he lifts up the needy by placing a permanent spotlight on them because he attaches knowledge of himself to them. I mean, Jesus is very clear. He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. If you want to experience the fullness of God, you've got to find Jesus. But Jesus permanently attaches himself to the weak and needy of this world. So if you're going to find the fullness of God, if you're going to find the meaning for life, if you're going to find the reason you were made and the mercy of God, if you're going to find all those things and you look for Jesus, what are you also going to find always without fail every single time? You're going to find weak and needy people because Jesus attached himself to them. Just flip through the Gospels. If you're going to find Jesus, who are you going to find? Broken, poor, sinful people. He's lifting them up. If you're going to find God, you have to find the low. He's exalting the needy. But he's also humbling the proud. And by proud, I mean people who think that, that their life is pretty put together, that they've got a lot of the answers, that they've figured things out. And deep down inside of them, they've, they've got a sense of self-sufficiency and put-togetherness, if that's even a phrase. They think that there's something inherently better about them than perhaps other people. Not that they're better qualitatively, but certainly they've figured out some things in life that others haven't, and, and perhaps we're one step closer to living the ideal existence we were created for than this other person who's still struggling. And Jesus came to blow that worldview out of the water. Because what he says is this, not only does he attach himself to the weak and needy, but he says you are not allowed into the kingdom of heaven without confessing that there's no difference between you and the weak and needy. Not only can you not find God apart from the weak and needy, but you have to admit that you are not as capable and put together and perfect and able as you think you are. You have to admit that there is no difference between you and the weakest and neediest person in this world. Otherwise, you can have nothing of the kingdom that I bring. So he forces the proud to be humbled. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says things like this in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is calling to himself a child. 
He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that until you become pure in motive and kind in heart, like all children are. Remember, this is first century Palestine. There were no laws protecting the lives of children under the age of three. They were considered a liability. They were considered disposable. It, it, was, it was okay for you if you suddenly discovered that you could not care for your child properly who was under the age of three or four for you to leave them by the side of the road to die. Did you know that? Because they were considered of lower value. They were considered a drain on society. They were considered a less than a full-grown, capable, working adult. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, unless you admit that you are this, you are weak, you are needy, you have nothing, you are helpless, unless you admit that you are that, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say this, whoever humbles himself like the child and recognizes I'm the weakest and neediest of them all, whoever humbles himself like that is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He did it to humble the proud. He's forcing you to admit that there's no difference between you and the weakest and neediest. But, but the third reason he did it is to save us all. He did it to uplift the needy. He did it to humble the proud. But he did it to save us all. If there's no difference between the weakest and neediest in this world and me, then Jesus entering into this world in great weakness and great need, it is him entering into our needy life. He is living the neediest and weakest of all lives, and he's living it perfectly. And he's putting himself underneath all of the evils and all of the brokenness of the world that weak and needy people experience. And he's doing it to earn your salvation, to earn your forgiveness. He's living your weak life. He's dying. You're punishing death, and he's being buried into your hopeless grave. But because it is the king of the universe wrapped in weakness and living this life and dying this death, it accomplishes something. It means that every one of your sins are forgiven and that you are a part of God's family because the king of the universe wrapped himself in your weakness and lived your life and died your death. And then to prove that it accomplished something, he rises from the grave. And the resurrection is like the great divine CVS receipt of all time. It is the proof that it's all been paid for. It's the proof that the curse is broken. That you are rich beyond belief in the things that really matter, the love of God, and that you have an eternity waiting for you. That's why Jesus did this. To exalt the needy, to, to humble the proud, and to bless us all. That's why he did it. Which brings us back to you. If this is all true, how should this mold and shape and change your relationships and mine with people who are needy? Certainly needier than us in the things of this world. Well, I think first and foremost, if you are willing to make your home with those who have need during the holiday season, it is the best way for you to live out what the holiday season is all about. I mean, if, if Christmas is about God and his riches making himself at home with us who are weak and needy and poor, then there's no better way for you to imitate the love of God than for you in your riches, whatever your riches are, 
to make yourself at home with someone who, who lacks something that you have so that you can increase their peace and their joy. That's you mimicking what Jesus has done for us, and that's a good thing. But, but whenever you make your home with the weak and the needy and you give out of your abundance into their poverty, whatever their poverty is, you are also bringing a little bit of heaven to earth. Because remember, from God's perspective, we are the same. We are all weak, we are all needy, we are all incapable of saving ourselves. There's no difference between the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich. We are all equally in need and equally in loved. And so when you notice inequality between you and somebody else in this world, and you give of what you have to raise them up to where you are, what you're doing is you're, you're making things just a little bit more on earth like they are in God's eyes in heaven. God sees no inequity between you and your poor neighbor. He sees none. And so what you get to do is say, on earth as it is in heaven, God sees us as equal. I have, you lack, I'm gonna lift you up and I'm making a little bit more on earth like God sees it in heaven. Does that make sense? You're bringing heaven to earth. That's what it's all about. And I think you can do this in some really easy but profound ways. I think you can do this through a word and a gift and a touch. I think you can do this first and foremost through a word that uplifts somebody else. I don't need to tell you that the holidays are incredibly difficult for so many people. So many people who are grieving a loss, who are working hard, who don't have the time off that you have. Uh, so many people who are battling uh, depression or some kind of other difficulty. The holidays are hard for so many people. And what so many people are lacking is to know that they're noticed, to know that they're wanted, to know that their work matters, to know that they're loved, to know that they're not alone. And you can lift them up to being noticed and loved and not alone through a word spoken to them. Never underestimate the power of a timely word. To someone who is hurting, and you know that they're hurting, and you simply say, I, I see what you're going through. Or someone who is working so hard in a season where perhaps you have some time off, and you're able to say, thank you. Or someone you've been estranged from or disconnected from or someone who is just feeling estranged and disconnected from other people and you have the opportunity to look at them and say, I love you. And I know that's a stretch for some of us. Especially some of us guys, we're good old boys. We're like, I, I, I told my wife I loved her the day I married her. If anything changes, I'll let her know. <laughs> but never underestimate the power of a timely word to someone in emotional poverty. You can also give a gift that empowers. There are people around you who are lacking the cash that it takes to provide their kids with a good Christmas or to pay a big medical bill or they're lacking the connections and the opportunities that could open a door in their career or they're lacking the, the, the safety uh, of, a, of a stable and secure home. Uh, they're lacking the ability to rest and enjoy the holidays with people that they love and you have the ability to give the gifts that can help them to buy the gifts. You have the ability to deliver the meals so that the single dad can sit down and eat with his children rather than simply work all day for his children. 
you have the ability to share a name, to be a connection to somebody, to open up a door that is blocked to them because of who they are and the place they are in life. You have the ability to give out of your blessings to lift somebody else up to your joy. What are the blessings that you have in your life? Presence under the tree, connections in your world. You have resources at your disposal. What would it look like for you to give a gift that empowers somebody else to have your peace and your joy and your opportunity? Be generous. And here's my challenge to you, St. Mark. Don't measure your generosity by what you give to others. Measure your generosity by what you leave behind for yourself. Then tell me how generous you are with your gifts that can empower. And then lastly, you can, you can offer a touch that encourages. And by this, I mean the power of being present with other people. To encourage someone quite literally means to pour courage into them. And one of the best ways to pour courage into someone who, is, who needs the strength to face grief, who needs the strength to face difficulty of any kind, is to simply be present with them and to listen to them and to refuse to let them be alone in their pain, alone in their grief, alone in their sorrows. And you can give them the gift of peace and joy simply by being present. Who in your world is lacking something that you know is critical to peace and joy? And what is the word that you can say? What is the gift that you can give? What is the touch, the presence that you can offer to lift them up to what you have, to be present with them and to lift them up to your joy and to your peace? Now, you may be sitting here this morning and say, Pastor Matt, that, that is all great, but I'm the one in need. I'm the one who is struggling. And if that's who you are, uh, that's where you are, I, I get it, I understand it. My only directive for you this morning is this, is to let us know. I've talked a lot this morning about noticing the need of others and meeting them there, but I have to admit that I and others, we have very poor vision. That very often it is hard for us to notice the need of others unless those in need make it clear to us. And it shouldn't have to be that way, but that's the world we live in. That's the way that it is. And so if there's something that you are lacking, certainly let us as your church know. We have the resources to help you. We have words to speak, gifts to give, a presence to offer. I think of our Stephen ministry, which exists to walk with people through very difficult seasons who are lacking something significant in their life, the courage, the strength, the hope, the peace, whatever it is. And we have people who are trained, who are ready and willing and waiting to meet with you and walk with you and be that life-giving presence for you. And if that's what you need during this holiday season, then on one of those communication cards, write your name and your email address or phone number and write Stephen ministry and we will connect you with someone. But at the very least, be bold enough and brave enough to speak to someone around you and say, I'm not okay. I need. And let us respond. I want to close by, by talking about Santa Claus. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about Saint Nick. As many of you may know, uh, Santa Claus, who's celebrated around the world through various stories and legends, has its origins in a Christian pastor, a pastor who had come on to be named a saint, and we call him Saint Nicholas. He was known for giving extravagant gifts out of his wealth uh, to children in poverty. Uh, he was known of giving out of his blessings to others, in particular children, uh, 
in their seasons of despair and their seasons of want, and in particular with the season of Christmas. And he was so generous in this and so regular in this that stories cropped up that eventually grew into what we talk about as Santa Claus now. But it all started with a Christian pastor who wanted to bless other people and notice their need and make a home with them and give to them. Uh, he lived in the fourth century. He was a pastor of other pastors, actually, so he was called a bishop. He was the bishop of Myra, which is now modern-day Turkey. But the best thing about St. Nicholas is, is not just that he gave gifts to kids and we now talk about Santa Claus, but the best thing about St. Nicholas is what happened at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. The council was this gathering of theological leaders who got together to talk about theological issues in this fast-growing church. And in 325 AD, they got together in Nicaea to talk in particular about this heresy, this false teaching called Arianism. There was this teacher named Arius who was at the council of Nicaea who was teaching that Jesus was less than God, that Jesus was a good man, a great teacher, that he helped us make a right relationship with God, but Jesus himself was not God in flesh. And this was a threat to the Christian message which was growing because central to the Christian message is that God himself has made himself known among us, that the only reason we're saved is because God in flesh came to the earth, not someone less than. And history tells us that St. Nicholas was so bothered by Arius' false teaching that he got into a heated battle with him. He got into a debate with him, and ultimately, Arius was punched in the face by St. Nicholas. It's true. St. Nicholas punched Arius in the face. Santa Claus punched a heretic. Put that on a Christmas card and send it. Throughout history, people have tried to capture this in art, and on the left here you see St. Nicholas punching Arius, uh, on the right, you see a meme that's floated in recent years. It says, I came to give presents and to punch heretics, and I just ran out of presents. <laughs> now, now, why would St. Nicholas take this particular heresy so personally? Here's why. Not only does it rob our faith of its saving power, because only God in flesh, living for us, dying for us, and rising for us, could make all the difference for, us, for our eternity. But also, this gave great meaning and purpose to Nicholas's life. The belief that God in his riches entered into our poverty and blessed us motivated Nicholas to live a life of doing the same, of noticing the needs of others around him and blessing them, which helped change the world. And so not only was it threat, a threat to the theological center of our faith, it was a threat to his sense of purpose and mission in this world. And so when Arius got in front of St. Nicholas and said Jesus was less than God, St. Nicholas gave him a present, a punch in the face. And I want to encourage you to be just as passionate. I'm not, not condoning violence, but to take a bit of the same purpose in your celebration of the holiday knowing that God in his riches came and noticed your need and made himself wrapped in weakness to meet your greatest need. For you to see as part of your purpose this year is making yourself at home with those who are in need around you. Who around you is lacking something that's essential to joy and to peace? What is their name? Picture their face. See it. And go to them. Speak a word. Give a gift. Be present. 
Because God in Christ has done the same and made his home with you. Let's pray.